Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, matey? Yeah, I'm alright, dude, you? Yeah, okay, thank you. Goody gumdrops. Revving up to my holiday now. Yes, it's exciting going away, isn't it? Yes, yeah, providing we don't get too much COVID bullshit. I just recently heard, uh, you were telling me right before this podcast started, that a friend of mine has... uh, of ours, rather, has uh, just recently gone to the country I'm about to go to, and apparently there was some fuckery involved with COVID passports. I have one, but apparently they wanted another. <laughs> and uh, anxiously waiting for him to get back and then tell me what kind of bullshit that was, because uh, the last thing I want to do is be put into a quarantine hotel at the airport despite being fully vaccinated. <laughs> oh, yes, you've endured several years of bullshit. You don't want to have to venture out into yet more bullshit. I was, yeah, myself and my partner. Free from the bullshit. We should have gone on this holiday um, two years ago now, and it's finally the culmination of that. So if it all gets fucked up by COVID yet again at the end, I shall be a very unhappy camper. Indeed. 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 Yes. Fingers yeah. crossed. Fingers crossed, absolutely. Yeah, so um, from this point onwards, uh, yeah, uh, we're going to be pausing the free podcast again. I know, I know. But, you know, we've got to take breaks sometime. Uh, as usual, we will be pre-recording uh, content for premium subscribers. So that will be continuing uh, as we usually do. Anyway, anyway, uh, let's kick off the podcast this week. We have got some news to start off with, of course. A couple of film reviews from Liam. And uh, I've got a couple of documentaries to discuss. As nice. Well. Hopefully two of them if we have time. In fact, I definitely need to do two of them because otherwise the trivia at the end doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how that works out in terms of scheduling. Uh, But let's kick off with a bit of news this week. Uh, A bit of TV news to start, actually. This is from the AV Club. Squid Game director Huang Dong-hyuk sets out for more violence with his next project, Killing Old People Club. Killing Old People Club. Mm -hmm. Squid Game Game creator Huang Dong-hyuk is working on his next feature, and this time he promises even more violence than what was seen in the popular Netflix series. During a conversation as a keynote speaker for MIP TV at an international Cannes series writers club, Huang shared the controversial film is set to be more violent than Squid Game. So it is a film rather than TV. I'm sort of getting that the wrong way around. Uh, Per Variety, the working title of the project is KO Club or Killing Old People Club. We can guess the film will feature some gruesome and graphic scenes of elderly people getting murdered. It may be so violent that Huang jokes that we may have to hide from old people for a while after the film airs. Wang has reportedly written a 25-page treatment for the film, which will be based on the work of Italian novelist Umberto Eco. For now, the director and writer says he's returning to South Korea to begin working on the second season of Squid Game, which is expected to arrive sometime towards the end of 2024. A couple of weeks ago, Wang shared some slim details about the forthcoming season's progress. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, Killing Old People Club. Interested? By the title alone, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those titles that demands to be seen, doesn't it? I think I'm going like, to hold fire on trying to glean anything substantive about the synopsis and just uh, go like dive headfirst into that whenever it gets released. Oh, it does seem like a working title, but I think they should probably stick with it because, I mean, it's, it's evocative, isn't it? Evocative, yeah. It's, I mean, it certainly attracts attention, so, which is the, you know, what you ultimately desire at the end of the day. Yeah, and then Squid Game had quite a lot of sort of social commentary on um, essentially the people involved in the Squid Games are financially destitute for various different reasons. But one of them in particular, a very key character in the series is an elderly man. And there was sort of a, a fair bit of comment there about how, you know, the throwaway element of elderly people within society, in this case, you know, Korean society. But I, I wonder if that's a, uh, a particular bugbear of his, a theme that he keeps coming back to. But I'd certainly be interested to see it. 
I just wanted to put from the end of this article as well. Um, apparently, Huang met uh, Steven Spielberg, and he said, uh, "Steven Spielberg told me I watched your whole show in three days, and now I want to steal your brain." <laughs> it was like the biggest compliment I ever got in my life because he's my film hero. I grew up watching his movies, so even Steven Spielberg was a fan of Squid Game. It was a uh, an international phenomenon, wasn't it? And I still haven't watched it. Yeah, you should definitely give it a go. It's um, it's an interesting take on an old concept mm. with uh, all that sort of. Korean super vibrant flair. Really, really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, yes, Killing Old People Club. My uh, eyes appealed for that one. Absolutely. Uh, article here from Variety.com. Mark Wahlberg spent millions and millions of his own money to fund new film. Mark Wahlberg's new movie, Father Stew, tells the true story of Stuart Long, an amateur boxer who becomes a Catholic priest while suffering from inclusion body mitosis. The film is way more than just an acting gig for Wahlberg, who recently told Insider that he spent millions and millions of dollars of his own money to partially self-fund Father Stew when no other financial backer would take on the project. Wahlberg said he was partly inspired to do so by his co-star Mel Gibson, who spent around $30 million of his own money to help finance The Passion of the Christ. Well, I'm always willing to bet on myself, Wahlberg said about partly self-funding Father Stew. I slipped the script to a couple of people I thought maybe would get it, and they didn't. And obviously, it's subjective. You have your own feeling of what the material is. Some people thought it was depressing because he's sick at the end. They didn't see the heart and the emotion and ultimately how inspiring it is. I felt Mel had done it with the passion, so maybe I try it. And if I did find someone to finance, then that's a whole other conversation because typically the person cutting the check also has notes and wants to be involved in the process. So I felt, you know what? I think it's better if I just step up and have complete control. Fair enough. Yeah, good for him, I think. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it shows that... Um... Undoubtedly, a passion project, and what what better way to put your money where your mouth is than quite literally? Yeah, I think it's a common misconception people have of just how expensive films are to fund. I mean, people hear about budgets all the time, but due to Hollywood accounting, it often goes a lot further than that as well. And I totally get his point about um, whoever's cutting the check tends to get too involved and feels like they then have some sort of ownership over the uh, over the creative side, whereas that's not necessarily a good thing, I don't think. Yeah, the only thing is, um, the only thing that really immediately springs to mind you bringing that up is that I already know that um, there are going to be a bunch of reviews that critique the film not as a film, but purely on the basis that Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson are involved in it. Yeah. That's um, absolutely going to happen. Yeah, which, which will be unfair, of course. I mean, separating art from artists and all that stuff that we've covered before. I mean, I'm quite interested in it as a piece and I'm sort of more interested in it in the, in the fact that Mark Wahlberg himself has, has gone this far with it. As you said, it's obviously a passion project and suggests that I mean, I kind of think as well that if you're going to fund it yourself, you have the right to make it exactly what you want it to be. So obviously that won't affect our eventual review of it. I imagine you'll be picking this up because you're a big Mark Wahlberg fan and it'll be a big release. And Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson fan as well. Yeah, of course. But um, yeah, interesting stuff. I wonder how many other actors would be prepared to put their financial balls on the line, so to speak. There's been a few, but they're a certain, they're a minority. They're a considerable minority. Just for the sheer expense, I think. I mean, it's it's silly amounts of money. A lot of actors do have silly amounts of money, but uh, a surprising amount are not as rich as you think. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. I think people can often get a skewed perspective when they see that, oh, you know, so-and-so was paid $5 million for his part in this movie. Yeah, but then you... There's a lot that whittles that away and installment plans and financial companies that go upturned and accountancy and all that kind of stuff. It does tend to get whittled down quite quickly. 
So to you know, to fund a, a decently uh, budgeted movie, you're looking at tens of millions really at this point, you know, especially for a big piece. I imagine, of course, he's forgotten his fee. It would make no sense to pay himself, would it? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. So it, it obviously really means something to him. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll I'll, um, I'll be looking forward to that one. Absolutely. Uh, my next article, this is actually uh, debunking an article I very nearly put in the news last week. So I'm glad we are where we are and I didn't decide to do it. Um, but this is an article from Pitchfork Media. Uh, David Lynch debunks Can Movie Report. I have no new film coming out. Variety cited two well-informed sources who said that Lynch would have a Laura Dern starring film premiere at Cannes. Lynch said it's a total rumor. Yesterday, Variety reported that the 2022 Cannes Film Festival will feature the premiere of a brand new David Lynch feature film starring Laura Dern. The publication got the news from two well-informed sources. Now in a new interview with Entertainment Weekly, Lynch has said he will not have a movie premiere at Cannes. I have no new film coming out, he said definitively. Lynch continued, That's a total rumour, so there you are. It's not happening. I don't have a project. I have nothing at Cannes. It's unfortunate. Well, I mean, two possibilities, or rather one possibility that... um... He does have one and he's just bullshitting so that people will be disappointed and then be surprised. I did wonder about the double bluff. Or, you know, you you mentioned uh, these two well-informed sources. Well, if he actually isn't releasing anything, how well-informed can they be? Well, yeah. You know, just... <laughs> this is very, very true. Um, apparently, there is there is going to be a, um, a secret premiere, a new uh, you know, unhyped release coming out of Cannes. And I guess the speculation and the the whispers have gone round that it was a David Lynch film. Apparently, there is still to be this this unreleased, uh, unhyped yeah. picture. I mean, he had um, he obviously had um, the third and final season of Twin Peaks out like um, a few years back, but he hasn't actually made a feature film for sixteen years. Yeah, um, he was asked, "Is there anything you're currently working on?" And he said, uh, "I'm working on painting and sculpture each day, and I've been working on Lost Highway, color correcting, and timing." So essentially, yeah, doing a little bit of remastering of previous. I watch work. his uh, weather report on Twitter a lot. It's a nice addition to the day. <laughs> He's a lot. I've always loved David Lynch. He's a cool guy. I think it must be a nice sort of ego boost for him as well. That people are. It obviously shows that the hype will be there for any secret David Lynch release. I mean, we sort of knew that already, but it's always nice, I think, as a creator to have that confirmed. Well, I mean, I've, a lot of what I've seen uh, recently, film Twitter is currently exploding with lots of Lynch-related stuff. Yeah. So, which is cool. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I did think, I mean, like when he released Inland Empire in 2006, I didn't hear anything at the time about it being his final film. But, you know, who knows? Maybe he will surprise people somewhere in the not too distant future. Yeah. Um, just to finally put the tin lid on this story. Uh, in a subsequent conversation with the AV Club, Lynch said, I have no film at Cannes, no. In fact, no one has ever even asked me that. You're the first person that's actually asked me, David, do you have a film at Cannes? I say, no, I don't have a film at Cannes. <laughs> he, he sounds irritated already, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> well, he's a, he's a very entertaining guy, Lynch, because he seems like a, you know, he's got a sort of, uh, he, he's got a very sort of jovial, kind of loud eccentricity about him, but he's but seemingly quite even-tempered. But now and again, you get him, like when he was asked about what he thinks of product placement in films, mm. his verbatim response was, bullshit. Total fucking bullshit. That's how I feel. And that was the answer. Yeah. So. <laughs> he's, uh, he's not known for being backwards coming forward. No, 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 no absolutely a, not. To use a very old phrase. But no. shame, really, because I think we'd all be up for some more. I'd be really psyched for another David Lynch film, and I love most of his stuff. So, yeah. Oh, well. 
And my final article this week, this is from filmnews.co.uk. Paul Verhoeven wants more sex in James Bond films. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> what is it with Paul Verhoeven and sex? He's a man that can't get off the subject. He's just a horny bastard. Yeah, apparently so, yeah. Uh, Paul Verhoeven thinks James Bond needs more sex on screen. The filmmaker, known for his work on movies like Basic Instinct and Showgirls, has hit out a modern-day blockbusters for shunning racy scenes in favor of crashing and blowing up. He said, It's about crashing and blowing up now. Sometimes these movies are fun, but the narrative tells you nothing about us now. I don't see any other thought in Marvel or Bond movies. The 83-year-old director insisted that if he took charge of a 007 blockbuster, he would make some big changes after seeing No Time to Die. Although he enjoyed Daniel Craig's Bond debut in Casino Royale, which saw him share intimate moments with Eva Green's character Vesper Lind, he wasn't impressed with his final outing. Speaking to the Sunday Times newspaper, he argued, There was always sex in Bond. They did not show a breast or whatever, but they had some sex. However, last year, Leah Sado, who reprised her Spectre role as Madeline Swan in No Time to Die, hailed Craig as a feminist who helped grow the Bond franchise. She explained, I think that Daniel really changed the character, made him more human in a way, more complex. I think that Daniel is also someone who is a feminist, and it's really something that he brought to the franchise. He wanted to have more complex characters. She noted that the female roles in the movie aren't there to please Bond's sexuality, and insisted they have a deeper impact on the story being told on screen. We're not here only to please his sexuality and not seen only through a male perspective, but real women that are strong and also vulnerable. That was something I think that was needed in a way. So two sort of very perspectives on uh, on the way Bond should evolve there. I mean, <laughs> Paul Verhoeven, man, he, he really is he's, he's a horny old dude is what he is. Well, well, yeah, he's a horny old dude, but he is one that commands the respect of people with prestige. I mean, if you want to talk about um, an incredible... Uh, do you know one film, a movie I absolutely love that does have a very strong female lead but was slammed as being misogynistic was uh, L. Mm. This film L with Isabelle Huppert, who is an actress who is, who is rivaled by very few people. And um, she's also... She's also uh, you know, a confident, fully rounded woman in reality and um, often plays one on screen. And she, you know, she championed um, her work in L and propagated the film and was very proud of it. I just think that Paul Verhoeven has different sensibilities. Sure. To a lot of, um, because the people have accused him of, um, you know, that whole male gay sort of thing. But I, I don't, you know, I know like quite a few Paul Verhoeven fans and they're not all guys. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. But I have to say, having watched No Time to Die and you know, as a, a consumer of media as a whole, I don't think I've ever watched anything that wasn't flat out pornography and thought, you know what this could do with more sex? You know, I, I, thought, I would like to read a Verhoeven treatment of like, you know, James Bond, he executes a room full of bad guys and then he fucks a woman in the ash. Yeah, and he's got her ankles then, in the air yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's, she's tied to the bed over <clears> there. And then I, I just, maybe, I must, at, no, at no point watching a Bond film, I thought, you know what, he could really do with that. Maybe yeah. I'm not, maybe I'm, you know, not holding the mask on very carefully because I just, I just like Paul Verhoeven. I'm really looking forward to watching um, Benedetta. Yes, we, we got the, the racy lesbian nun film. <laughs> so he's, he's satisfied someone out Still there. haven't seen that, but I'm aiming to soon. Apparently Liam, for the, for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, more sex in Bond, I don't know. I, I really don't have an opinion other than... Well, he's, Paul, Paul, just make your movies. He is, I mean, he is... Let's have it right, I mean, especially when you look at the source material. He is a sociopathic character who is... Um, 
you know, he's, he's a very sensual character. He does exude this sort of raw, animalistic mm. kind of machismo that is, you know, it's very fueled by his um, kind of lizard brain desires. He's a very smart guy and he's very adept at handling himself, but he does enjoy, you know, a bit of carnality here and there. Sure, but I think then you, you just have, you know, your quick, okay, I get it, you know, your two characters build up to a moment where their passion explodes and so we have a sex scene. But I think any sex scene longer than about 20 or 30 seconds just seems unnecessarily uh, fetishized, I think is the word I want to go for. People, you know make, I mean? people do make the same art. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's just a plot point and then they had sex. It's you know an age-old I mean? age debate though, but I mean, um, some people could arguably say the same thing about violent set pieces. I guess, you know? yeah. I true. mean, like some people get bored by watching an action scene that goes on for a couple of minutes. Uh, what's wrong with having a sex scene that does? I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I well, just, you know, just think it's in, you know, it's in, interesting questions. To boy, watch. are we putting across varied and balanced opinions this week? This is what people come. Here I believe to. so. Yeah. It's an important question. Too many Puritans out there, man. <laughs> Paul Verhoeven's right. Fill everything with sex. <laughs> anyways, anyways. Uh, yes, we have a couple of film reviews for uh, Liam to do this week. I will let him decide where he starts. Where are we going this week, dude? Okay, so yeah, got a brand new one and one that was released not too long ago, I believe late last year. I'll start with the brand new one. This is a release I've been anticipating for a couple of months now. Um, this is The Outfit. So this is the directorial debut of Graham Moore, and Moore co-wrote the screenplay with Jonathan McLean. John McLean of Die Hard fame. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> fresh from Nakatomi Plaza. Absolutely, he's, screen, he's script writing now, you know, he's a mad jack of all trades. <laughs> and uh, so we're in... Chicago in 1956, and we are introduced to a man named Leonard Burling, who is played by the superb Mark Rylance. And Leonard is um, an expat Englishman in Chicago. And a lot of people, a lot of characters in the film do, and many watching the film would refer to him as a tailor. But it's a term that uh, Leonard quickly corrects. He tells people, I'm not a tailor, I'm a cutter. And he insists there's a very important distinction between tailors and cutters in the world of suit making. Tailorship? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. What yeah, is yeah. the word for that? Yeah. Haute couture, whatever the fuck sure. you would call it. Yeah, he says, I'm, I'm not a tailor, I'm a cutter. But he owns a shop that would typically be called a tailor's by most people. And uh, he's a very... Um, he's, he sort of uh, comes across as something of your... Typical, very old school, very well-mannered and savvy Englishman. You know, he he's, he's, takes great pride in his work. He's extremely good at what he does. And um, he addresses everyone with a very keen politeness that never, it never comes across as obsequious, though he's just even-tempered and nicely-mannered. And um, he addresses, like, whenever he um, is dealing with, like, a male customer, he addresses them as gentlemen. He's just a very likable guy who carries himself quite well, but uh, he anything that's nothing to do with him, he's very, you know, head down, needle and thread, just getting on with his own business, blah, 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 don't want to know. So old, old school English dudes served in World War One. He's cut from that sort of cloth. Well, at some points... After Leonard emigrated to the United States from the United Kingdom and opened up his store, he caught the attention of a local figure named Roy Boyle, 
who is an Irish, Chicago Irish mob chieftain, curiously played by Simon Russell Beale, of all people. <laughs> but um, the Boyle clan have been using Leonard's tailor shop as a drop spot for a while now. You know, they, they, they hide dirty money there. They hide other packages there. They intercept other mysterious packages. And um, the first um, two members of this little crew we see are um, Roy Boyle's son, Richie, played by Dylan O'Brien, and uh, Richie's compatriot and seeming sort of best friend partner in crime, Francis, who's played by Johnny Flynn. And they come into the store and they're sort of bantering with Leonard. They keep, they don't refer to him by his name. They just refer to him as English. They keep calling him English. And they kind of rib him a little bit, but it seems most, it's, you know, it's a little bit, um, it's a, it's ever so slight bullying, but not, it doesn't really get too nasty. They're just kind of young, thuggish guys and they have a, something to prove and they swagger about a bit. But Leonard just kind of laughs it off and he doesn't, doesn't really care all that much because all he really cares about is his business and a, um, a sort of paternalistic relationship he has with his young assistant, Mabel, who's played by uh, Zoe Deutsch. Leonard's kind of hoping that Mabel might one day take the shop from him and carry on the trade after he's long gone, but she doesn't want to do that. She wants to get out of Chicago. She wants to travel the world, but there's also a concern that she might have a bit of a romantic entanglement with Richie Boyle, which is something that Leonard uh, sort of silently voices disapproval of, because as I said, he's a man who's very careful not to overstep his mark. But uh, yeah, so he's tucked away in his little place, the mob have basically, not exactly on the payroll, but they might as well have him on the payroll. He has to deal with them every day, but he seems to be in relatively good stead with them. Everything's tickety-boo until one night, Richie, Boyle, and Francis, they crash through the doors of the tailor shop, and Richie is bleeding from the gut. And um, they tell Leonard that they've just been in a confrontation with a rival crime syndicate known as the La Fontaines, who are like a, a they're like a black French immigrant crime syndicate. The Boyles have been at war with the Fontaines, the La Fontaines, for a considerable amount of time now. And um, they get Richie in, and um, Francis insists that Leonard stitches Richie up, you know, you as he would make a suit, like take your needle and thread and stitch up his wound, because it was an exit wound, so they don't have to worry about a bullet in there. Then Francis, for some reason, decides to tell Leonard that um, the Boyle clan have caught the attention of the outfit, i.e. Al Capone's Chicago outfit. And they are very impressed by the promising activity and the ruthlessness of the Boyles. And um, they are sort of in the process of extending their protection to the Boyle clan and incorporating them into the outfit. And that um, recently, to show a sort of quid pro quo assistance, the outfit have intercepted an FBI tape that incriminates the Boyles in um, you know all the shit they get up to. And the outfit have intercepted it and they've handed it to the Boyles. And now the Boyle clan are like, okay, so we've got a rat. We need to find out who the rat is. And whilst they're deliberating over who the rat is, they're plonked up in Leonard's shop uh, because now he's, they've just decided on the spot that Leonard's place is going to be used as a, a, a base of decision-making and contemplation throughout the night while they try and figure out what the fuck is going on, who has done what, 
And um, so Leonard has basically got to use his wits to make sure that he survives the night and essentially see if he can, with a little bit of craftiness, swerve things in his favour so that he and Mabel can walk away unscathed. So pretty much yep. straightforward. Yep. Uh, this is a very cool little film. It's a nice little uh, ga- sort of gangster. Not really, I don't really know if I call it noir. It's more, you know, st- a straightforward uh, one location, 50 sets, uh, you know, gangster piece. Mark Rylance. I don't think I've ever seen Mark Rylance in a role that is, where he disappointed me. This guy is easily one of my favourite actors around today. I first saw him in Intimacy, directed by uh, Patrice Chirot, I think back in 2003 with Kerry Fox. And I've seen him in, in many things since. And I just think this he's an absolutely fabulous actor. He embodies that kind of very old school, inoffensive, yet simultaneously mysterious gentleman so authentically, so organically, you absolutely believe in him as Leonard Burling. And you like him as Leonard. There's something very personable about him, like atavistically personable. And um, he's obviously a very, uh, he's something of a streetwise man. He only gives very sort of intermittent, vague details of why he came over to the United States and his life before. And uh, there are gradual reveals as to what kind of guy he really is. Um, That's leading on from that. The one criticism I would offer of the outfit is that it has something of an excess of reveals. Yeah, I appreciate that it's a debut feature, but they fit in just maybe one or two more twists and turns than they needed to. And in fact, the final five minutes of the film... I was like, mm, oh, oh, you could have done this a different way. It would have been nicer, but not enough to derail it. Unnecessary but, final twist. Un- yeah, well, like, just um, not not even an unnecessary final twist, but just an unnecessary last five minutes, like the, specifically the way they ended it. There wasn't really anything wrong. There's not really anything wrong with the the ultimate backstory exposition of Leonard's character. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just the way that the film ended in the final five minutes. I wish that they had done, I wish that they had sort of thought of something else. But I didn't feel it was enough to derail the film at all, which I'm very thankful for. Rylance has got great support from Zoe Deutsch and Johnny Flynn. These characters, you know, um, Zoe Deutsch and Mark Rylance, you really do care about their characters. You do root for them which is something that helps this film along uh, very nicely, very satisfyingly. Johnny Flynn is a superb uh, antagonist as Francis. This guy just reeks with dislikability. And in fact, all of the goons in this are just people who you can't wait for someone to blow their fucking head off. So there's very enjoyable stakes um, it doesn't. It, it won't blow your socks off in terms of its developments, but it's craftily written. There's a nice craftiness to it, and yeah, just the, the cinematography, the use of largely one, lo- well, pretty much only one location, and just the back and forth between the characters. Yes, the fact that it's a debut feature does show, but it is very well crafted. And uh, Mark Mark Rylance um, has just done a 10 out of 10 performance again. It is a really impressive little film and I would definitely urge people to see it because I enjoyed it. Cool stuff. Yeah. Nice one. 
And then next up, we have The Sadness. Now, I believe this was released in the late months of last year. But uh, this is a Taiwanese film. And it's written and directed by uh, Rob Jabaz. Now, I believe Rob Jabaz is uh, Canadian. So it's kind of like, I was expecting it to have a Taiwanese director, but kind of, kind of like how you, when you first watch The Raid, I suppose you'd expect it to have an Indonesian director and not Gareth Evans. Yeah. So, Indonesian, yeah. It's an easy martial arts film made by a Welshman. Made by a Welshman, <laughs> yes. And here you have a Taiwanese horror film written and directed by a Canadian dude. Now, Maybe rather ignorantly of me, I didn't actually double-check to see if Rob Jabaz was a Canadian of Taiwanese descent, but even if he's not, it's not really something I want to get bogged down with. I just thought as a quick sort of preface thing, it was a little bit unusual. Mm. But, yes, Rob Jabaz, writing and directing, I think his very first feature-length film. And, uh, we're yes, we're in Taiwan, and uh, as the film opens, we see a young couple in bed, this is uh, Jim, young man played by uh, Berant Zhu, and Kat, who is played by Regina. That's the, uh, the actress's name is just Regina, apparently. They're a young couple who live together. I'd guess them to be in their mid-20s or so. They're sort of getting up and lazily sort of getting ready to do the day's work, and um, Regina asks Jim if they're still due to go on a trip that they planned for the next week. But Jim says that he's actually had a job come up, so she's not very happy with him. And there's a little bit of a tiff there. But for the most part, this seemed to be a couple who were very deeply in love with one another. And, you know, they're essentially sort of your regular Joes, you know, rather sort of likable people living in a high rise. And uh, they're pottering about and we see um, on the news from several different television sets sprawled around this sort of cinematic vicinity, that there's something, there's a purported outbreak of something called the Alvin virus. Now, we first clock this when Jim goes on his phone and looks at YouTube, and there's sort of like a, a I, think, I guess it's a Taiwanese equivalent of something like the Alex Jones show or another one of these fringe talking head shows where it's one host essentially lambasting people they disagree with, and the host of this is... Uh, as we see him, he's just lambasting um, a doctor who claims that the Alvin virus poses some incredibly significant dangers for humanity. It's going to have um, symptoms and ramifications of horrifying proportions. And the host is like, oh, you know, this is all just a ruse. This is something for the government to use to um, make the economy go busted and they can bet on stocks when it eventually recovers. So it's essentially there are immediately strong parallels to the ongoing pandemic. And um, most people are thinking, oh, the Alvin Voigt, even Jim and Kat's neighbour says the Alvin virus, oh, it's just a fucking hoax. Don't worry about it. It's just all bullshit. And so everyone's doing their normal day-to-day thing. Uh, but then Jim goes into a cafe to get some breakfast and he's already taken Kat to work, like an office building, and he goes uh, to get some food at a little diner. And um, an elderly woman walks in. She's got long grey hair sort of down to the middle of her back and she is in a blood-splattered white nightgown. Now, Jim had actually seen this woman standing on the roof of a building in the morning when he went out on his balcony for a cigarette and she appears yet again. And people turn around and they take notice of her and uh, there's a young chap who gets up and taps her on the shoulder to ask if she's all right. And she turns around, grabs hold of him and 
proceeds to vomit something into his face. And then she turns around to face Jim and we see that her eyes are completely and utterly... I don't know if it's sort of like a sort of blood red, but with a with a tinge of black. There's no iris left. They're completely and utterly red. Like there's no distinguishing eye features apart from you know, there's these two bloody red sort of black masses. And uh, she bears her teeth at him in this monstrous grin and calls him a handsome boy. And then the young gentleman that she puked on suddenly jumps up onto his feet from the floor and his eyes look exactly the same and he grabs a large skewer and starts to stab his companion to death with it. So as it turns out, the Alvin virus is something that turns people it infects into absolute sadistic, bloodthirsty, depraved, homicidal maniacs. I see. So... Right off the bat, you have uh, comparisons to 28 Days Later because these are not actually people who are undead. These are people who have been infected by a virus. But the way that the sadness is distinguished from that is that the people who are infected, they still retain their cognizance. They still retain their memories. They still remember who they are. But all of their base desires, their, the, the most um, depraved, absolute antisocial instincts um, that is residing within them are brought to the forefront and everything else is, is just completely sort of, you know, put in the, um, I don't know, the fucking... The, what is the term they're using? Get out of... I know it's a weird film to cross-reference, but is it the sunken place? It's like the, the rest of their personality, they still retain it, but that's sort of right on the back burner and just all of every single shred of malevolence and perverse instinct and violent fantasy, everything is just pushed forward. At one point, um, there's a character who describes it as... Um, the virus attacks the limbic system and it essentially fuses together the parts of the brain that govern sexual drive and aggression. So it's, it's almost, it's essentially like being possessed. What it does to your brain, what it does to the limbic system, it, it's almost like it scientifically turns you into a demon because the infected, not only do they prowl around committing extreme acts of like murder, rape, torture, cannibalism they also say the most profane things they threaten people with um gruesome um acts of uh, general violence and sexual violence this somebody uh, was talking about this and they said it's probably the most violent and depraved zombie film even though it's not technically a zombie film that's ever been made and uh, i can kind of see where they're going with that so they, they, I mean, these are some. You want to talk about, you know, fucked up, infected. I do think that the infected of the sadness, they arguably uh, take the crown in that regard. And as a consequence, this film, I can absolutely empathise with people not getting along with it. That being said, and even though, as I said when I tweeted about this earlier, you could arguably reduce the film, I suppose, on a superficial level to uh, a slightly repetitive collection of gory set pieces. There are lots of things that really elevate it. Rob Jabaz, his, uh, the script and just his manner of directing, they are very engaging. This I've thoroughly enjoyed um, watching this film. He's got a great command of the camera. 
He knows how to follow characters well. He knows how to build a sense of almost un- unbearable anxiety. And the score as well. The score is by an outfit called, um, I guess it's pronounced Chekhar. It's T-Z-E-Z-H, sorry, T-Z-E-C-H-A-R, all in capitals. And uh, they do this, They this, the film has this score. And it's kind of like a combination of really discordant, screechy, unnerving sounding horn instruments with this very sinister, pulsating synth score that um, sounds much like something John Carpenter would have used in his early ventures. And it, it, it builds the atmosphere so perfectly. And another really smart move that Jabaz makes, I think, is even though this film is absolutely drenched in viscera and gore and um, it's, a, it's brutal, it's absolutely severe in terms of violence and gore, a lot of the acts, a lot of the acts which are, I'd say, consent would probably consensus uh, taken to be, you know, this is the most, you know, these are the most disgusting and appalling things that a human being can do. The majority of them are actually left off camera, which is an excellent decision because you are overwhelmed, you are bombarded with uh, this incredibly grisly imagery, but a lot of the most really fucked up, really appalling, appallingly disturbing um, incidents of depravity that people are mentioned to have committed. You don't actually see them do it, which I think was an excellent decision. All in all, it's not, it's, it's a, we've seen these viral outbreak films and yes, 20 years ago was 28 days later. So we are accustomed to the idea of um, zombies, but not really zombies, people being infected with the virus and uh, just, becoming incredibly destructive. But I, yeah, I would say that the sadness turns people into the worst kinds I've ever seen. Like, you know, just the the, mo- the most disgusting and malevolent. And, you know, because remember, sadism is a paraphilia. A lot of people think of sadists as, you know, they enjoy people seeing in pain out of a sort of simmering rage. It's not, it's because they get a sexual kick out of it. And the film addresses that. And that's something that's going to make a lot of people squirm with discomfort. I really admire Jabaz's commitment to going full throttle with it whilst, intellig- whilst directing it in an intelligent way. And it's very immersive. It's got a great flow. It's got really good performances. Um, there's nice little twists and turns in there that I thought were very well handled. It's, the sadness, um, I, think it's, I think I'd say it's one of the most entertaining fluid horror films like zombie horrors splatter gore horrors whatever the fuck you want to call it that i've seen in the past few years i was very impressed with it enjoyed it very much and if that's your cup of tea you would not be wasting your time at all checking it out it's really good stuff oh that's very intriguing yeah i think i'll give that a look yeah, Asian cinema. I mean, we've, we've trumpeted Asian cinema many times. And I stuff. have seen a bit of the hype train on this as well, talking about the violence and that it's um, they put a lot of effort into it as well. They it's, put an incredible amount of it's effort. It's very visual. And, and, yeah. and the fact that the antagonistic elements sort of re- retain their personalities, you'd have to see it. You'd, you'd have to see it to get the full effect of how unsettling it is. But yes, very well executed indeed. I I love I loved it. I would definitely revisit it at some point in the future or show it to like minded people. Very good stuff. Get your track it down somehow if it's showing somewhere. Go and see it or rent it or something because I know I've, I've banging about prestige horror a lot, but I love these kinds of horrors where it's economic 
but there's no there's no trappings, there's no frills and bullshit. It just does what it does, and it does it in a compelling way. This is definitely one of them. So yeah, cool stuff. Okay then. Well, uh, in lieu of my usual TV of the week spot this week, because uh, well, there's a lot of things doing that gradual drib drab of episodes that I love so much in my position as a TV reviewer. Uh, I have instead opted to review a couple of documentary pieces. Um, the first of which you could argue is a docu-series, but I would argue it's a documentary in two parts. And uh, a little bit of a trigger warning here, this is not a fun subject. And uh, you're going to be immediately aware of why when I tell you the title, which is, uh, this is on Netflix at the moment, Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story. This is what you meant when you said doc to me earlier. We had a discussion earlier about um, what trivia I was going to do this week. And I said, well, I've got one piece coming up that um, I definitely can't do trivia on. Um, Yeah, it's a very, very uncomfortable topic. And uh, I'm going to sort of briefly explain why. I mean, Jimmy Savile, where to start? I suppose we should start where the documentary does, which is in its first act, so to speak. It goes into a, uh, a long dissection of Jimmy Savile's Previously, will be called illustrious career, I suppose, as both a, you know, for those unaware, I, mean, I think it's more of a UK story more than anything else, though it definitely made international news. Sure. Jimmy Savile was a extremely popular British DJ working from the uh, late 50s onwards, who later became a TV presenter and is mostly known actually beyond his uh, TV and radio presence as being a philanthropist. Yeah. Of raising a huge amount of money for charities, uh, in particular hospitals and children's homes and that sort of thing. He did huge amounts of uh, charity marathons and bike rides and became a huge part of the British establishment. He was well-loved by the royal family, which is something the documentary is a great pains to discuss, his close personal friendship with Prince Charles and how he tied the royal family into the charity work, even to the extent of uh, the royal family, members of the royal family actually writing to Jimmy Savile for advice as to how to handle their own personal PR how to get more in touch with the common man because uh, Jimmy Savile, is a, particularly as a northern UK figure, was regarded as sort of a hero of the people, a working class champion. Yes. Jimmy's out there. He, he's a bit eccentric. He's a bit weird, but he's lovable and he does all this great stuff and all this great philanthropy. And um, after he died, uh, there were always rumours following Jimmy Savile throughout his lifetime. And after he died, um, those rumours were confirmed in the worst possible way. Now, going into this almost sort of feels like a spoiler for the documentary because it's very much aimed, I think, at an international audience. We in the UK are very, very familiar with this story. In fact, it was pretty much all the news could talk about for a good year after it came out. even more than that. Yeah, and and actually still going on to this day as to what I would describe as Jimmy Savile's uh, unfortunate victims and the depth of depravity that this man went to. Essentially, he is widely regarded to be and essentially proven to be one of the worst um, paedophiles and sexual abusers the world has ever known. And that is a fact that is uh, left until the second part of the documentary, about 45 minutes from the end. Now, So this is in two parts. The first part's about an hour and 20 minutes, and the second part is an hour and a half. And 45 minutes from the end is when it actually reveals the extent of this man's um, sheer depravity and the crimes that he committed, which is an interesting choice. The first part in particular, I was watching it, when the the first part ended, I thought this is really interesting because 
they're kind of setting it up as almost like a bait and switch kind of thing. As I said, this is very obviously designed for people that aren't familiar with the story. So as a UK resident, it's kind of weird to watch in that, you know, they keep hinting subtly as to what's to come later, but you know damn well. I imagine, for example, an American audience would know much less of this man's um, horrors, if you'd like. But what it does in the first part is it shows all of this philanthropy. It shows the rise of his career, the rise of his stardom. But every now and then, it puts like a hit of horror movie strings or a freeze frame of him with his eyes wide open and a thud of a drum in a distance. It really is trying to do what it says on the tin, like a, a British horror story. And I, I kind of think it fits. I get where they were going with it. If demons were to exist, if devils were to exist in like the biblical sense, these beings that can disguise themselves on earth and they're actually almost indistinguishable from other people. They're known, even celebrated by the community, but actually behind the scenes, they're being unbelievably nefarious and torturing and disgusting and sadistic. Jimmy Savile will be a genuine candidate for that particular demon. Do you know what I mean? 100%. And so what this show sets out to do is to quite literally demonize this man, which is appropriate. You know, I... Jimmy Savile's crimes are completely and utterly unforgivable. He is without a doubt one of the worst human beings to have ever existed. I mean, it really is literally that bad. I was a little uncomfortable with the idea of only dedicating 45 minutes at the end to what are essentially his victims. And really, I think when somebody has performed so many of these unspeakable acts, the onus should be, if you're going to tell the story, on the victims and their tales. And so I guess the show is sort of caught in a catch-22 scenario where although leaving this reveal as a, as a bait and switch at the end, ah, you knew something insidious was coming and then here it is. I kind of feel like the victims would be better serviced with more time given to them. However, as an effective piece, as an attempt to get across why this was such a big deal, this guy was, he was so in, integrated into British culture and British society. He was a, a demon hiding behind philanthropy and charity work. And as somebody, I can't remember who said it, but uh, somebody put it beautifully and said that um, Jimmy Savile was a paedophile who hid himself and disguised himself as a paedophile. He constantly made jokes and references throughout his career. Yes, absolutely. To this idea that he was um, fiddling with young girls, etc. in the background. And people went, well, he can't be then. He can't be a paedophile because who would be that brazen about it? Look at his weird hair and yeah. his weird glasses and his leering face. Anybody that was doing that, you know, why would he possibly joke about it? Surely he would just downplay that constantly. Getting away with it is the biggest kick of all for people like him. He like was hiding in plain sight. Yes, absolutely. And getting away with it, that gives them people like that. Well, <clears throat> I use the word people very loosely. Mm. It gives them the ultimate rush. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, there is some discussion of that. I would have liked a bit more um, sort of analysis, as you said, you know, um, the sort of psychology of the man. I think it's very interesting. Although, in, in that way, he, he somehow remains a closed book. We will never really know. Uh, there is some discussion of, of course, the duality of the man. And of course, there's some uh, incredible disbelief from people who worked with him in a, a philanthropic kind of way. They've actually got quite a few interviews with his biographer who um, released her biography of him two months before the allegations surfaced and was a great friend of Jimmy Savile. And she struggles massively to reconcile the Jimmy that she knew with the Jimmy that um, everyone else revealed him to be. There's some charity workers and things as well going, but there's this weird duality to this day of going, but, but, but he, did, he did so much good. 
I can't get my head around the fact, how could someone do that much good and be that person as well? I, I know it's true. I just can't reconcile those two facts together. It's, it's the perfect cover. Yeah. That's where, that's where it weaves. He's engineered the perfect cover. What better cover to get away with his crimes? Yeah. You know, the, 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 the money he gave away in philanthropy. I mean, the guy was absolutely, he would never run out of money. He was, that was nothing to him. And it just gave him free, gave him reign to act like a god. So, you know, and I'm very glad, I must say, I'm I'm actually very glad, um, as how you're describing, that um, the show is painting him as if he were a demon. I think. Oh, yeah, they they really are portraying him as a a horror movie monster. And I think. Well, that's good because I, um, (laughs) as somebody who um, is admittedly, you know, like it or lump it, someone who admittedly is getting a little bit more um, retributivist in philosophy as the years pass. I've always been irked by very smug people who go like, you know, oh, so, you know, you you dehumanise people like that. It's like, no, they dehumanise themselves. I mean, I, I would often make that argument, especially when we're reviewing a documentary or something like that, that dehumanisation is often not helpful. However, in this case, I can't help but agree with it. There was very little human about the man. I think if you don't act like a human being, I don't really see why that should be put on other people. You know, if you don't, if you completely violate the golden rule and you just act in a completely antisocial way, you're not behaving with the empathy that human beings have evolved to expect from one another. Mm. So you dehumanize yourself. Yeah, uh, I, you I, I, I will. Abs- in Jimmy Savile's case in particular, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, as, as a whole, this documentary, I mean, it's not fun viewing for obvious reasons. I can imagine not. But I think it's pretty damn comprehensive. As I said, I would have liked a third part that focused more on the victims. I get there's a slight offness in the balance here. It's a documentary that it's in two parts and it feels like there should be a third one where it kind of resolves itself and almost absolves itself in a sense of what can we learn from this? How do we move forward? All this kind of stuff. It sort of builds up to a fever pitch where the sheer unbelievable extent of his crimes is revealed and then it kind of cuts. And ordinarily, I would think that was kind of clever and pacey. Actually, I feel like it's kind of missing a bit at the end of it. But what it sets out to do is to be a comprehensive tale of Jimmy Savile's rise and the ultimate rug pull that he pulled on the world, really. And in that sense, it's formatting works. I think it is effective. I think it's well put together. I think it's well researched. Uh, there's some interesting new, um, not necessarily allegations, but things coming to light through that I wasn't aware of before. And I followed the story massively. I think everyone in the UK did. But it has got some revelations of its own in there. It's got some good commentary. I mean, Ian Hislop turns up as well as, um, yeah, obviously the editor of The Private Eye and uh, a, a big UK figure as a, pretty much the country's um, preeminent satirist. And uh, he appeared on panel shows with Jimmy Savile. It's interesting watching that footage back as well to see just how uncomfortable Ian Hislop was with sitting next to it. I think Hislop has always been a pretty sharp judge of character. Yeah. Which, always, which is what makes him a good satirist. So. And he said as well, like people people keep thinking that because Private Eye alluded, his magazine, his satirical magazine, alluded to Jimmy Savile's crimes over the years, that we uh, we were spearing him, that we were, we were out, you know, we, he said we were certainly out to get him. We could never prove it. All we had was rumour, and you can't say someone's a gigantic paedophile yeah. without proof, and we didn't have any until after his death. And there's a bit of sort of self-flagellation from both him and um, a couple of other big media figures as well going, yeah, we we, we all kind of knew, but we couldn't prove it, and we should have proved it because we feel like we failed. You know, the, the whole thing about how did he not get caught? 
it, he was so brazen, as you said. He he just, he just sort of skirted over the Absolute, top of it. Was, was, was it like, the audio? Was it not nineteen seventy eight? There was that interview recorded with John Lydon where John Lydon says. I think Jimmy Savile's up to all sorts of seediness that we all know about, but we're not allowed to talk about. You know, I've heard some rumours. As you say, it's gone back just almost as far as the man's career came into existence. And, yeah, just complete monster. Um, I do think it's um, a tragedy that uh, he wasn't alive to face justice. I'm glad that his reputation has been absolutely torn down and thrown into the shit can as it should be, but... I'm just, it's just a real shame that he passed away before, you know, before he got what he fucking deserved. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And the uh, the documentary uh, very much sums that up nicely. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful piece of work and I would advise, uh, particularly if you're unfamiliar with the story, to to give it a watch. Just uh, be prepared for some genuine real life horror. It's, uh, it's pretty heavy going at points. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, my second documentary is much more cheery. <laughs> uh, this is called Return to Space. Okay, cool. And this is also on Netflix at the moment. Uh, this is uh, chronicling the first human space flight. Oh, this of, is right up your street. It is, yeah. of uh, of the company SpaceX. Of course, they uh, developed their rockets to a point where NASA finally allowed them to take NASA astronauts up to the International Space Station. Uh, this covers both the development of SpaceX as a company and also this pivotal mission where for the first time a private company was allowed to send real human beings up on a gigantic rocket and slingshot them at the International Space Station. And um, all successfully as well. That's no spoiler really because obviously if it was unsuccessful, we'd all know about it by now. <laughs> but uh, I was a little wary going into this because we're dealing with Mr. Musk. And I am not a particularly big fan of Mr. Musk, although I am a fan of SpaceX. I exist in a weird uh, half space, a limbo on this one. Um, as a, you know, in a way, I don't know, you you might explain it to, I don't know, like uh, a small child, because I don't really know, I, I know who Elon Musk is. I am honestly not au fait with exactly why people dislike him so much. Can you summarize that or is, would it take too long? Um, gradual reveals over the years about his treatment of his workforce, um, right. his, his treatment of people around him and his general uh, methodology and personality in regards to his, shall we say, empathy for other human beings is lacking. So he's a bit of a supervillain. Yes. Okay. Yeah. However, he's a supervillain that is genuinely furthering the human race. So we're on a weird... Dichotomy. That's here. a double-edged sword, right there. Yeah, he, yeah. I, I think I think he's absolutely right to use his personal wealth to um, to revitalize space transport. NASA's dropped the ball. Somebody needed to pick it up. Elon Musk has, and as a result, he's aiming to send humans back to the moon and Mars and beyond. And this is the first step of that. And I do applaud that. And thankfully, this documentary focuses on the work and not the man. If this was a documentary about Elon Musk, I would be very interested in that because he's a very interesting human being. But I am more interested in the science. I'm more interested in the human achievement angle. And that's exactly what this documentary does and very, very well, I'm pleased to say. As I said, it focuses on the science. It focuses on the development. It focuses on the majesty of the achievement. It has got some absolutely fabulous footage of space launches, um, life aboard the International Space Station, pretty much every aspect of the mission was very, very well documented. And so if you're a space nerd like me or a sci-fi nerd or any of that interests you, the footage in this is kind of unparalleled, really. We're now in an age where it's now 
HD footage rather than grainy, broken up transmissions and yes. things like that. And it is absolutely gorgeous, wonderful to see. Uh, there is some mention. I mean, Elon Musk obviously turns up in it a few times doing his his really terrible, weird delivery. It's really awkward at points when he's sort of congratulating the control room and he doesn't know how to speak to a crowd and things like that. There's some real sort of... He's quite an awkward person. And not that I'm um, debasing or demeaning him for that, but it's interesting to see the uh, the sort of play between ego and arrogance and uncomfortableness and awkwardness. He's a, quite an odd individual in that sense. But the achievement, you can't take anything away from it. And that's what this documentary is all about. If you're a space nerd, if you're a sci-fi nerd, if you're looking for something uh, awe-inspiring, if you're looking for something quite optimistic and hopeful, actually, especially in contrast to my last piece on a horrible, horrible man, we're now dealing with a, a company that is quite literally taking the human race to its next steps. And whether you agree with the machinations behind that or not, and I don't necessarily agree with the machinations, the achievement is still there for all to see and I can still marvel at it and I can still appreciate it. This documentary, I was very, very worried about it being essentially a promo video for SpaceX. I guess it kind of is, but the things that it celebrates about SpaceX and the achievement are, I, I can totally see why they're tooting their own horn. You know what I mean? I think it's right to toot their own horn. I think they've picked up the mantle of um, an, an optimism and a hope that in these dark times we could all, you know, we could all do with a little bit of that. It could easily veer into over sentimentality or too much self congratulating, too much patting on the back, and it doesn't actually. It sort of presents the uh, the wonderfulness of sending people back to space again and aiming. Well, we used to call it aiming for the moon. Now we're aiming for Mars. We're, we're aiming to become, as um, Elon Musk himself puts it, a spacefaring people. That's his goal in life, to get the human race to a spacefaring stage. And he is, for the most part, achieving it. So it's a very cool piece of work. And if any of that interests you, I found it um, quite an inspiring piece. That sounds pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I guess, I, I don't know, maybe it's remiss of me, but I just haven't really, as I say, I know he is, but I, I know he has appeared on Joe Rogan, for example. Yeah, there's some footage of that in the documentary. Is it, does it, what, does, so does he just come across in all interpersonal interactions as like a fucking weirdo? Well, I mean, I don't want to go too far with that because I, I do believe he is um, self-identified as autistic as well. And obviously that throws up some, um, he obviously is going to have issues interacting with people, but there's also, he's, he's made some decisions in his life towards, um, as I said, empathy and um, treatment of his workforce and things like that that are, uh, not excusable, even by you know a, a medical diagnosis. Shall I put it that way? Is why well, I'm not necessarily a fan of the man. But yeah, he's a he's something of a I would say a genius in his own right. But he's also a one man hype machine. It's very difficult sometimes to separate the man from the hype. And this documentary doesn't really go any way towards that. It's not its subject. Well, its subject is the achievement of getting human beings back into space off of American soil. And um, it, as a result, it does a good job of portraying that. I think it's a uh, yeah, it's quite an inspiring, hopeful piece. Nice one. Mm. Terrific. Well, speaking of which then, uh, as I said, I very obviously couldn't do trivia about my uh, my British horror story, so I've decided to do some Elon Musk trivia. Okay, cool. Should yeah. we learn a little bit about the man? Yeah, please tell me, because I don't really know that much. Born in South Africa, Musk is the offspring of May, a Canadian nutritionist and model, and Errol, a South African engineer. His parents, however, rarely did much parenting instead of leaving basic child-rearing to a housekeeper. The man himself says that books, stacks and stacks of them, were his constant companions as a child. After his parents' divorce in 1980, his brother and sister chose to remain with his mother, while Musk stayed with his father. Later, he realized that his dad was a terrible human being, in quotes, one with a reputation for ruthlessness. 
Errol Musk had shot three intruders dead in self-defense and was acquitted of manslaughter. He also fathered a child with his own stepdaughter. In spite of his personal shortcomings, Elon's father was also a good engineer, one who passed along many fundamental lessons on electricity, construction, and science to his young son. At the age of 12, Musk programmed his own computer game called Blaster, which he sold to a computer magazine for a few hundred dollars. That set the tone for much of his future professional life. Until his teens, the boy's small size and introverted nature made him a target for bullying. Once he was beaten so badly, he was rendered unconscious. The bullying only stopped when he learned to fight back. It's no wonder then that he fled South Africa, in part to dodge mandatory military service in a country split by apartheid, for university in Canada at 17. That's when he began to blossom in incredible ways. Wow. I mean, that's a hell of an origin story. Yeah. So his step-nephew is also his brother. I guess. I mean, that's yeah. weird fucking family dynamics right there. Never mind his dad sounding like an absolute nut job. Yeah, so. I, I, I hesitate to make apologies for the man, but as you said, that's uh, that's quite a lot of childhood it doesn't trauma. doesn't necessarily excuse it, but it sounds like it makes causal sense. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Musk and his roommate, Andeo Ressi, rented a large house and converted it into a nightclub while still students at the University of Pennsylvania in order to pay rent. According to Vogue, the club could hold up to a thousand people, so it wasn't a small setup. Some nights I'd be like, where's Elon? And I'd go up to his room and pound on the door, and he'd be in there alone playing a video game, Ressi told Vogue. <laughs> That'd be me if I owned a nightclub. <laughs> Just, Fuck it. Yeah. Why, would you, why would you want to go out there and be in the nightclub? You guys can run out. I might come down for the odd drink, but I'll be upstairs playing, you know, whatever I'm playing. Fuck it, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I can totally side with him there. In 1995, Musk and his brother Kimball, who was on the board of directors of SpaceX and Tesla, launched their first venture. The 20-something siblings created Zip2, an online city travel guide that was soon providing content for organizations like the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. The company was bought by Compaq Computer Corporation for nearly $350 million. Four years later, Kimball and Musk used some of the money from the sale of Zip2 to form X.com, an online financial services and payments company. Within a year, X.com acquired further assets and evolved to PayPal. The company was later bought by eBay.com for $1.5 billion in stock, of which Musk received nearly 10%. Wow. Hmm. Always been an entrepreneur right from the off. I mean, yeah, that um, computer game when he was a kid as well. He's always uh, sort of understood the value of uh, science and technology and, uh, and just the value of money, I suppose. What's his... Um... Personal wealth, what's like his net wealth? Uh, for a, a period of time last year, he was the richest man in the world. But as I understand, his wealth fluctuates massively, depending on who so you are. So he was ask. even richer than Bezos for a time. For a time, yeah. I believe that's gone down now because every time he gets to a certain level of wealth, he, he has to pour it back into all his ridiculous number of projects. So I, I also remember a couple of years ago, he was completely flat broke. So it really depends on how his... Really? Yeah, yeah. It Fucking hell. It really depends on how his, uh, how his companies are fluctuating and how his assets are moving around. Like a lot of billionaires, as I understand it, actually. It's not... Um, yeah, the common misconception is it's a figure in your bank account, whereas in reality, it's more like assets. And uh, if you were to sell everything, how much money would you, would you actually own? Sure. Yeah. Musk started SpaceX in 2002 after realizing that he could significantly cut down the cost of space travel by using vertical integration cheap commercial off-the-shelf components when possible, and modular engineering. While the company struggled in its early years, the company became the first private organization to send a liquid propellant rocket to orbit in 2008. 
Now the company has emerged as a major private contender for various space exploration projects, including future missions to Mars and the Moon, while also being awarded several lucrative NASA contracts. Musk joined Tesla in 2004 as a Series A investor and became the chairman of the board of directors in the company. After a lawsuit with founders Martin Eberhard and Mark Tappening, who were the CEO and CFO at the time respectively, Musk could call himself one of the co-founders as well. Initially involved with the product design of the vehicles, Musk later led Tesla to go public in 2010 with backing from Daimler and Toyota. It became only the second American car manufacturer after Ford to go public, and in 2017 overtook General Motors as the most valuable vehicle maker in the US. Wow. Fucking hell, man. That's another common misconception as well, that he um, founded Tesla sort of from the ground up. He is technically allowed to be called a founder, but it was a pre-existing company before he joined. And uh, so it's a bit of a... Um, Did you do a Ray Kroc on them? I was about to say, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit of a Ray Kroc situation with yeah. Tesla. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, he, he tends to, when you think of Tesla, you think of Musk. When you think of Musk, you think of Tesla. It's actually a very clever bit of sort of rebranding sure. in a way. Although I, you could argue that he's certainly... Um, contributed massively to their success. Machiavellian boss. (laughs) He's often criticized Facebook, which has often found itself in hot water over privacy concerns. In 2018, Musk deleted Tesla and SpaceX's Facebook pages and said the social networking platform gives me the willies. Later, Musk joined a Twitter trend and called on people to hashtag delete Facebook. What's really interesting about that, I find, is that um, a couple of days ago, Musk actually put a bid forward to buy Twitter. I knew that he um, bought a massive uh, amount of shares. Mm. I didn't know he was attempting to buy it. He's now looking to buy it outright for a valuation of, I think it's $41 billion I was reading yesterday. See, I can't get my head around these rumours because I've heard from some people that he was offered a position on the board of directors and he turned it down. Yeah, the story's bouncing around at the moment. Initially, I think it was um, he wanted to buy like a 51%, like a controlling shares kind of thing. And now it seems he wants to buy the whole thing wholesale and outright. Um, what that says for free speech, I really don't know. I, mean, I Well, uh, there's actually a lot of people, uh, what I did here today is I saw a lot of tweets saying that they're worried about Musk just allowing anything to go on Twitter. Now, as somebody who is very anti-censorship, I would have to see the extent of that, but I don't see that as a bad thing. It could be an improvement. I mean, God yeah. knows. We well, we, have, we have no control. We'll, we'll be used to it quite a lot. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. See the, what the man does. In the days yeah. to come, yeah. And I thought I'd finish off here with a quote just because I thought it was funny. This is from uh, aerospace engineer Robert Zubrin, who uh, worked for SpaceX and uh, was a, a longtime collaborator with Musk. He said, he is a humanist, not in the sense of being a nice person, because he isn't. <laughs> <laughs> Very to the point. I love nutshells like that. Yeah, I mean, we we could go further into. I uh, do your own, basically Google Musk, and you'll find a lot of reasons why he might not be the uh, the person that he portrays himself to be. But I kind of I, I do find it difficult to argue with someone using their their personal wealth and their um their accumulated wealth to technologically further spaceflight. It's a, it's a weird position for me. I'm totally. I keep getting pulled from pillar to post on it. I mean, I don't necessarily... an interesting man. don't necessarily know if he is a misanthrope, but I mean, misanthropy and humanism, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. No, and I don't think Elon gives a fuck either, which is... Uh, <laughs> He's a humanist sort of uh, by, you know, kind of as a byproduct, an unintentional byproduct. Yeah. Rather than intending to be one. Um, you know. Yeah, he's... 
in terms of furthering the human race through the development of space flight, I mean, that's very humanist, isn't it? Extremely, yeah. But then he turns around and is terrible to his factory workers. So, yeah. I, yeah, where do you stand on that? People are complicated. People are complicated. Obviously. They are complicated. Yeah. Anyways, anyways, yes, that's the end of our free podcast this week. We're going to go and record the premium now. Uh, a bit of a catch-up week, this one. Liam's got a load of extra takes to do. And uh, I wanted to have a bit of a chat about Mad Men as well. Okie dokie. Which is a uh, series we've both watched, but it's actually a, a big gap in my TV knowledge, and I've been uh, marathoning through it recently. We'll have a bit of chat about uh, Don Draper et al. for a bit of fun. Uh, yeah, if you'd like to check out our premium content, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. Um, we won't be back next week with a free one uh, or the week after that because I will be away on my holidays. Yes, All things be being enjoying easy. some well-deserved time off. But if you'd like more content, of course, do check out our premium stuff. There's literally hundreds of episodes and uh, new ones will be released on the usual schedule. Uh, anything to add, Liam? As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, really appreciate your support and your constant viewership. And yeah, please check out all the good stuff we mentioned. Keep on having a good time out there. Nice stuff. Okay. Uh, take it easy, guys. We shall see you very, very soon. <laughs> <laughs>